Before we dive into another episode on another controversial topic, I'd like to give a brief note regarding impartiality. Um, I'm not a journalist. I'm a citizen. I vote. I don't know how to be a journalist. I've never gone to school for that. Uh, What I'm more trying to do is to practice open-mindedness. I'm trying to resist extreme thinking. I'm trying to be careful with my arguments. I'm trying to listen to stories, have my mind and heart expanded. But obviously I'm coming from my own perspective, which I would consider center-left. If this were a Clinton-Kasich election, I would probably vote for Kasich. At any rate, tell me how I'm doing. Let me know when you think that certain perspectives are not being given a fair shake or being ignored completely. I'm not trying to alienate people with any sort of agenda. I'm really trying to bring everyone to the table to the extent that I can. One little note about the episode. We had a little problem with Trisha's Skype connection, but it's pretty doable. It's pretty bearable. So just hang in there. She has some amazingly interesting stuff to say, and I hope you enjoy it. Okay, so I am here with Trisha Ananiades, and this is a complicated topic. We're going to talk about Black Lives Matter, police injustice, etc. And I need to acknowledge at the start that I am a white man. I'm coming from the majority position. And I have heard an argument a few times that I find pretty convincing that goes something like this. Anytime a member of a minority group says that they are being mistreated, the very first thing you do as a member of the majority group is you just listen. You don't talk, you just listen. I find that really reasonable, and yet this podcast is such that I need to do some probing and some discussion and some devil's advocate argumentation. That's just what we do here. And so I'm going to try and find a balance, Trisha, between just listening to you and asking and then trying to engage meaningfully and compassionately. So are you cool with that? Okay. Sounds good. Okay. So why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, well, I first, I guess I should acknowledge that I am a, I'm a woman of color. I am biracial, mixed, um, black and white. And in that vein too, I'm also, you know, I'm in an interracial marriage. My husband's white and I have biracial children. So, um, that that's a little bit, you know, on the personal note about me and what shapes my perspectives. Other than that, I am an attorney. I work in entertainment law, but prior to becoming an attorney, I was also a, a high school teacher in the inner city in Los Angeles and have worked in education for five years doing policy and advocacy work for low income and people of color. Nice. And where did you go to school? I guess that's important too. (laughs) I went to, I went to undergrad at UCLA and I went to, and also graduate school for education at UCLA as well. And I went to law school at Harvard Law School. Man, you already got like so many steps up on me, Um, (laughs) but I'm not going to dwell on that. So, (laughs) hey, you know, some of us, we go to school for three years, we drop out to play in a band and we finish at the closest college near us after we get married. (laughs) It's okay. It's okay. Yeah, no, that's fine. Some of us, some of us take way too long to finish all of our degrees and then stare at our student loan debt every month and think, why? (laughs) That's true. There are, there's, there's uh, multiple sides to that story. So (laughs) when we spoke uh, before this interview, when we were kind of getting acquainted, um, it seemed like a good place to start the discussion was stop and frisk uh, because both Trump and Pence now in the first two debates have basically lauded the practice of stop and frisk. It's a practice that was deemed unconstitutional in the state of New York. And they've made some claims about it. Both Pence and Trump have made claims about its efficacy. Why don't we start there? Uh, First of all, can you just tell us what the policy of stop and frisk is? Sure. So what stop and frisk is, is when a police officer encounters a person, they have the ability to stop and frisk that person in order to, you know, guarantee the police officer's safety or, you know, in the, in the interest of public safety and, you know, in the interest of 
stamping out crime, things like that. Now, those rights of the police officer to stop and frisk are also counterbalanced by an individual citizen's constitutional rights. So in order to sort of explain this, I want to go back a little bit to a case, Terry versus Ohio. And this is the case where they first discussed the constitutionality of stop and frisks. And in that case, they, the Supreme Court decided that, you know, people generally have a reasonable expectation of privacy and the right to not be unreasonably searched or seized. And that is, you know, a constitutionally guaranteed right as well. It's our Fourth Amendment right. But the police also need a certain amount of flexibility in order to do their job. You know, there's rapidly evolving situations when they're on the ground and they really need a way to be able to respond to those situations without having to necessarily grind down onto the constitutionality of what they're doing. So like there needs to be some kind of a difference between a search warrant for your residence and like that person looks dangerous. I need to act in the moment. There needs to be some difference. Exactly. That's exactly right. And so the question in that case was, is it always unreasonable for a cop to seize a person? And so when they stop you and don't let you go, that's a seizure. And is it, so is that always unreasonable and sub- to do that and to subject that person to a limited search for weapons unless there's probable cause? And so the Supreme Court said, you know, look, stop and frisks, frisks do constitute a seizure under the Fourth Amendment because you've restrained the person's freedom. But to find whether it's reasonable or not, the stop, you have to look at specific and articulable facts, which taken with reasonable inferences that the cop is entitled to draw from their own experiences, um, could reasonably warrant the imposition on this person's Fourth Amendment freedoms. So what the court really did is said, look, it's a balancing test. On one hand, the cop's immediate interest to protect themselves during a stop and the public's interest in crime detection and deterrence. And on the other hand, a person's individual rights. So as I mentioned, it needs to be articulable suspicion. It can't just be a hunch. And it can't just, you can't just say, well, it was good faith. So meaning after the fact, the officer needs to be able to write down multiple facts that attest to what gave him or her the suspicion. That's exactly right, because the reason that the cop actually stop and frisk the person needs to be able to be reviewed. And so if you don't have articulable facts, if you can't say it was because I saw the person walking back and forth past this store window at 2 a.m. 27 times looking in the window or something like that, if right. you don't have you know, specific things to say, then there's no way that a court can review to find whether the reasons why you stop and frisked were adequate. Does stop and frisk refer to a specific policy among New York officers that did not require actionable um, or reviewable pieces of data? Right. So in in the New York case, what happened was that the officers were stopping and frisking people without reasonable suspicion. So they didn't have those articulable facts that we were talking about. And they were doing so because, you know, their rationale was looking at crime statistics or crime numbers. They felt that, you know, black and Latinos between certain ages were more likely to commit crimes than others. And so they really focus their efforts in stop and frisking on that particular population. So both sides, I I can see, are, are a little bit right. So Trump and Pence are right in that stop and frisk, it's still constitutionally permitted. What was wrong is that it is not constitutionally permitted in the way that the city of New York was enacting the Terry stops, which is also the other name for stop and frisk. And the problem with that is that Trump specifically mentioned how effective it was in New York, and that particular brand of stop and frisk was deemed unconstitutional. That's correct. And the reason is because the New York City program was disproportionately affecting Blacks and Latinos. So there's a couple things at play then within this New York style, to use a very technical term, this New York style of stop and frisk. There is whether or not it reduced crime, which it must have removed guns because the thing about the stereotypes of these officers for this age of men who are minority is that statistically they're backed up. It is true that if you stop a bunch of these young men, you will find some guns. Of course you will. Mm -hmm. So that's on the one hand. But the other hand is 
because of that, because of that suspicion, it, it becomes a vicious cycle, right? So then those young men, the ones especially who don't have guns, are now incentivized to dislike police officers, to feel like they're not going to be given a fair shake by the legal system. There tends to be a lack of trust in the system, in the police, when people feel that they're being unfairly targeted due to their race. Um, But really, when we're stopping and frisking based on race, it really sends a message that our system is co-signing that Black and Latino people are inherently dangerous and problematic. So we need to think about the message that we're sending to our citizens when our police and our justice system is acting or are acting in this way. Because if someone is stopped and frisked and there's, for example, recreational drugs are found, that's really just a post hoc justification for the stop and frisk. But it doesn't mean that the person actually should have been stopped. And, you know, I, I think that if we go anywhere, you know, you can go to New York City, maybe you can go to, you know, Bed-Stuy area, or you could go to, I don't know, the Upper West Side in New York and stop and frisk someone. You could find recreational drugs anywhere. You can find it among right. upper upper middle class, upper class white men and women as well. You know, you, you, you'll find what you're looking for, basically, <laughs> in any regard. And I think it's problematic when we only target citizens of a certain race, knowing full and well that we can find those things, you know, other places. And, you know, as you mentioned, I think that this also plays into a cycle of poverty, especially if we're targeting inner cities, as Trump proposed during the debate, because when you're targeting inner city citizens, you know, someone goes in, they're arrested, you know, for gun possession, drug possession, something like that. If they're arrested, they're probably going to stay in jail for a little while. That can lead to a lost job. But even if they don't lose their job, then they get sentenced. They go to jail. You're surely going to lose your job at that point because you're not able to go in. So they get out of jail. They get out of jail. There's difficulty finding employment when you have a criminal record. And at that point, it's going to lead to recidivism because when people feel like they have no options, they've tried the right way and they can't get any traction there at a certain point, you're not going to keep trying the right way anymore. Okay. So let's, let's take a, a parallel case. Um, sure. so let, let's just, let's just give this man a name. Let's say his name is John that you're talking about. And mm-hmm. let's say there's another, there's another Dave and Dave lives in suburban San Jose, California, and he is not stopped and frisked, but he has the same exact amount of marijuana on his person, let's say, or whatever that John had mm-hmm. the privilege or the privilege of Dave, the white suburbanite is that even though he was participating in the exact same activities as John, because he is white and would not be stopped, he then would not face all those consequences that affect his future employment prospects, et cetera. Right? That's right. That's right. And it it actually doesn't even need to be, you know, John in New York City versus Dave in suburban San Jose. It could be John in New York City and Dave in New York City. Even better, right? Yeah. But Dave, white male, doing the exact same thing, he's less likely to have the adverse effects on his life that stem from now unconstitutional stop and frisks because he just he wouldn't even be discovered. He would he could literally walk right past this situation with a pocket full of marijuana while John is being stopped and arrested for the same amount. Yeah, so that's better. Yeah, remove it from California versus New York. You, so you then extrapolate this out. Let's say there are 100,000 stop and frisk interactions over a given time period, and 85,000 of those stop and frisks are minority members and 15,000 of them are whites, then you see pretty quickly how this is going to lead to some long-term injustices. That's right. And quite frankly, not not to pick on the city of New York, the problem is the way that they enacted the stop and frisk law, but also there is a larger sort of justice system and systemic issue with how black people are treated once they're integrated and within the justice system as well. So all of these things play a part in sort of contributing to some of the issues that people talk about when they talk about wanting to clean up the inner city. So let's talk about what happens once a person of color gets into the justice system. Um, Rather than talking about how they get in, which 
I feel like we didn't exhaustively cover it, but at least that's one example of how they might find themselves in there when someone else might not. Once they're in, what unique challenges does a person of color face that a white person does not face? Okay. So once a person of color, and specifically a black person, is arrested, a black person is more likely to remain in prison awaiting trial than a white person. So, for example, a study in New York State as well, their Division of Criminal Justice studied these times and and what happened to people after they were arrested before trial. In some parts of New York, blacks were 33% more likely to be detained awaiting felony trials than white individuals facing felony trials as well. And, you know, a separate study done by the U.S. Sentencing Commission in 2010 found that at least within the federal system, black offenders receive sentences that are 10% longer than white offenders for the exact same crime. And there we're just, they're controlling for everything. It's just exact same record, exact same crime, 10% longer Mm -hmm. sentence. That's right. What explains yeah. that? Is it the is it inherent bias of the judge? Is is the judge the one who uh, commutes the sentence? Is commutes the right word? Yeah. No, commuting means that they they kind of get rid of. Oh gosh, <laughs> so I am watching. I am exclusively watching television <laughs> about crime. Uh, who hands down the sentence? There we go. Yeah, you know, it's a lot of things, and yes, I mean. It's, it's just an example of an unconscious bias that some people have. You know, people don't necessarily mean to come across as biased. They don't mean to have, you know, give disparate sentences. But these things happen when we study them on a larger, on a larger basis. And as to why, I mean, that's really the only thing that I can think of is that people have these unconscious biases. What do we do about that? I, I'm not quite sure. But it is a problem. And I know that some people think that, you know, mandatory minimum sentences could help this problem, but that doesn't really work either because there's also a separate, you know, separate reports by um, an institution, a nonprofit organization called the Sentencing Project. And they found that blacks were 21% more likely to receive the mandatory minimum sentences than white defendants. 20% more likely to be sentenced to prison for drug offenses than white drug defendants. So even with those mandatory minimums, we're still seeing issues in disparate sentencing between uh, black individuals and white individuals for similar offenses. That is just, it's so sad, but it's also, it's so clear. There's something so helpful about being able to see an actual statistic like that and look at it barefaced and just go, okay, that's, that's a problem that like, there's no way around it. Right. Yep. Absolutely. And, you know, like I said, there's a lot of things that play into that, but you know, when we see the numbers, the numbers are the numbers and the really at some point we're going to need to start doing something about it because when people, we have these groups of people, I mean, it feels like, you know, almost a generation of black men in particular who get out of jail, who get out of prison for these offenses. They try to go back to work. They try to make an honest life for themselves. And they even get stymied at that front because, again, another study, 17% of white job applicants with criminal records receive callbacks from employers. Only 5% of black job applicants with criminal records get callbacks. So, we need to do something in this country, not just about, I mean, obviously the race issue is real and we need to do something about that. But I think sort of more broadly, we need to do something about the way that we treat people who have been to prison. And when they come out, you know, what what are we going to do to make sure that they are able to make a good life for themselves? Yeah. So it's interesting, like implicitly, you're also talking about that phrase that a lot of times gets thrown around on the right, which is personal responsibility. You know, a a common Mm -hmm. argument to the black lives matter arguments is like, well, look, we need personal responsibility. It doesn't matter how many programs we run. If people in their own hearts don't want to live good lives, they're not going to live good lives. But what's interesting about what you're saying is look, fine, grant personal responsibility, these yeah. problems are systemic and they are logically prior to 
the individual's desires or skill set or self-discipline. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. you just statistically are more likely to have these negative things happen to you if you're black, bottom line, regardless of what you want in life or if you were in the wrong place at the wrong time or if you genuinely committed a heinous crime, put everybody down the funnel and you, you're going to get a 5% callback on a job or a 17% callback. That's just, it's just the fact, right? That's right. Yep. That's, that's exactly right. And, you know, going back to the idea of personal responsibility, if we we're telling people, I mean, it's, it's sort of comical, not in a really funny way when you think about it, you know, we're telling people take personal responsibility, take personal responsibility, take personal responsibility. Okay. And this person says, well, I'm going to go out and get a job. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> We're right. not going to hire you. Um, okay, well, then how do you propose that this person pays their bills? Well, just take personal responsibility. You might say there's two issues here. There are the systemic issues, which we can change through voting and through the legal system, stuff mm-hmm. like that. And then there is, if we're going to talk about personal responsibility, uh, we can talk about um, incentivizing responsibility through policy. That is an option. And... But we also can talk about, for those on the right, to to unfairly characterize this as a left-right issue, which is not entirely a left-right issue, but for those who are saying personal responsibility, personal responsibility, I think the challenge could go out to those individuals, do you own a business? Hire an ex-felon. You know, do you, uh, in what way could you extend a chance for someone who is trying to turn their life around to exercise personal responsibility. If you have any resources with which you can do that, then the ball's in your court just as much as it is in their court, right? Yeah, I agree. And I will say, though, I was having a conversation with a coworker the other day, and we were discussing our ability as a, as a greater society to accept that someone you know has made a mistake and has changed or the, the ability of people to be viewed um, on their current point of view on a subject matter as opposed to what they've prior, you know, said in the past yeah. or anything that they've previously said and how we collectively seem to want to um, punish people for having a, an opinion that they might have had, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago or something they did in the past instead of really understanding and recognizing that the person has changed or evolved or is, is not that way anymore. And so, and yes, I, I agree with you. Policy points in terms of incentivizing people to bring in, um, you know, people who are convicted criminals to work for them and, you know, to help those people get on their feet. Um, but I also think that people should sort of individually take stock of, of their belief system in terms of, you know, do I think people can change? If I think people can change, do I really want to judge someone based on something that happened 10 years ago? Or do I want to see how they, how they are now? Do I have it, the propensity for forgiveness? You know, I think all of these things, and it, you know, it's not really a policy point. It's not really a legal point, but I think it really contributes to how we feel as a society and, and can help when we're trying to talk to people who maybe don't have the same opinions as we do on various issues as well. You know, do we have, the space in our, in our brains, in our hearts to be able to accept people sort of as they are in the moment and and not try to beat them over the head with something that they might've said in the past or something like that. Yeah. Said or done. Right. Yeah. So let's, let's transition to a more kind of general feeling kind of thing away from, away from the data a bit. So I remember when Black Lives Matter first came on the scene, uh, sort of in a, in a major public way, all lives matter. It didn't take very long for that to catch on as sort of the response. And my memory from the, from the beginning of that was that it was almost like a, a grammatical point. Do you remember this? There was this phase of the discussion where I, and I will admit that I even found myself sympathetic to All Lives Matter, especially at the very beginning when I was trying to think through as a person who cares about words a lot, what does this mean? I think that's been pretty much cleared up uh, as far as I can tell that the Black Lives Matter contingent has basically responded with, well, we're just saying Black Lives Matter also. 
They matter right. just as much as every other life. And right now it sure seems like they don't matter as much. And evidence for that is the statistics that you've been citing so far. Right. So it seems like we've kind of gotten past that sort of surface level dispute. And yet the two camps remain there. And Blue mm-hmm. Lives Matter has now come in as well, which is maybe, if I can be a little bit unfair to the right, uh, maybe easier to justify than the All Lives Matter thing because maybe people are picking up on the grammatical nuance of Black Lives Matter also. But Blue Lives Matter is you know, talking about the safety of our police officers and trying to shed light on, okay, if, even if there's systemic injustice towards minorities, Also, we need compassion on these cops who have a very difficult job and even the ones who are trying to not be racist still have to make these snap judgments um, with their lives on the line. Can you speak a little bit to All Lives Matter or Blue Lives Matter? What has been your experience interacting with those two sort of counter movements? Well, first, usually when I encounter somebody who is saying All Lives Matter, Particularly now, I mean, as you as you've mentioned, this sort of grammatical point, you know, it's really not a binary choice to say all lives matter or blue or black lives matter, excuse me, saying and as you said, saying black lives matter doesn't mean that others lives don't matter as well. But my question is and always has been, if someone truly believes that all lives matter, why is that a response to Black Lives Matter. Hmm. If you really believe that all lives matter, then you should also believe that Black Lives Matter unless you don't believe that Blacks are part of the all. So I've never understood why that's a retort thrown in the face of Black Lives Matter. You know, if anything, you should say, yes, 100%. If you're truly all lives matter, yes, 100% Black Lives Matter. Now, you can also think that other lives matter too, but, you know, unless you don't believe Blacks are part of the all, I just don't understand. Well, can Um, can I throw something out there and see what you think? Sure. Do you think that some people, for whatever reason, it might be the media that they consume or the social circles in which they move, do you think that some people feel like, I'm going to try and characterize this sort of right-wing media line of thought, those at the bottom are constantly asking for handouts and are constantly trying to make the conversation about them to the detriment of the middle class and upper class who are working hard or something along those lines. Do you think there's maybe a residual attitude like that that might be kind of in the water for some people that then to hear the Black Lives Matter movement come out, that's their kind of knee jerk is like, oh, again, here's someone else asking for something and they're they're only focusing on themselves and there's no civic duty or, you know, could it be something like that for some people? You know, it could be, but I guess my my response would be if someone really, you know, if they truly believe that all lives matter, every single person's, then why don't I see an all lives matter movement otherwise? You know, not just when somebody's killed by a police officer and it seems unjust or anything like that. So, you know, it very well may be a response, somewhat sort of visceral response to what they feel is someone asking for something again that they don't feel is warranted. But if that's the case and it is sort of a knee jerk reaction in that response, then people need to get comfortable with the fact that there is something racialized about that response, Sure, you know, because usually people say, well, I'm not saying all lives matter because I'm racist. I'm just saying, I think it's everybody. Well, are you, are you sure about that? Because, you know, if, if that's the thing, if that's your, visceral reaction to somebody who is part of, uh, you know, an, an oppressed group really in, in the United States, if that's your response, you know, oh, you're asking for something again, then yes, it is racialized and then just, and just get comfortable with that. And if that's the case and it is a racialized response and that's not who you think you are, if you're somebody who you think, you know, I'm not, I'm not racist. I don't have problematic viewpoints. You know, people who I love and respect are people of color. I'm just not that person. Then those people really need to start doing the the mental work around getting a, a perspective that actually matches what they truly believe and expressing that. Yeah, at that point, it might be time. It might be time for someone like that to dig into the research and, yeah, and make right. sure that they are not being controlled by uh, evidence free biases. Yep, that's right. 
so I'm not, I'm obviously not trying to put you on trial here, Trisha. Um, I'm just, the goal of this podcast is to try and find middle ground. And so I'm trying to empathize with people on all sides of this question. Um, it seems like an issue that maybe shouldn't be as polarizing as it is, unlike something like abortion, where you have a very clear divide on where you think the rights matter, you know, and if you think it's murder or something, this one seems like it shouldn't be so polarizing, and yet it is. And I'm wondering if part of the reason of that might be that this issue has become politicized. When a black man is murdered or a black woman is mur- murdered by police and news of it goes out on Facebook and Twitter, it's almost as if 90% of America knows what they are supposed to think about the individual case before they know any details because it's part of, it's like putting on the jersey for their team. They just know. Yeah. Has that been something that the Democratic and Republican Party have finagled? Or do you think that that has happened naturally as people tend to divide along social and ideological lines? I think that that's probably, it's probably just happened naturally as people divide, you know, along social and ideological lines. Okay. I don't, I, I don't think that, any party has necessarily co-opted it, at least with respect to the Democratic Party, because I think that there is still a lot of, a lot of, frankly, internal debate about something like a Black Lives Matter movement within the Democratic Party, because there are so many different, I guess, demographics that make up the party. So, at least with respect to the Democratic Party, I think that there's actually struggle there, whether they are really in support of it or not. So. That aside, you know, I do think that at least the Republican Party has picked up the banner of All Lives Matter, though, as a response to Black Lives Matter, not because that's something that I think that the party truly believes in, but I think that it's something that has been picked up because they understand that, uh, frankly, a lot of people at the co- in the core of the Republican Party have a lot of frustrations with how the government works, with how they feel that their lives are going, with their financial burdens, you know, et cetera. And I think that, you know, All Lives Matter is a way that helps them pick up those those people who are feeling disenfranchised without explicitly, I guess, calling into question any issues of, of race or anything like that. So I, I do think in that respect, it has been co-opted by the Republican Party, at least. Yeah, I remember reports of All Lives Matter chants uh, in the crowd at Trump rallies, but I don't recall if Trump started those or if those were an organic thing. And kind of to your point, it doesn't really matter, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's like, if it's an organic thing in the crowd, then a shrewd politician is going to pick up on that and is going to use it, right? Right. That's exactly right. And, you know, I know Rudy Giuliani has been really big on saying this as well. You know, so I, I do think that it that it is encouraged and, and people pick up on it. They're going to use it to their advantage. I, I hope that people understand, you know, just the regular person understands that, you know, in no way does it mean that somebody who is a white person living in the Rust Belt, like that person doesn't matter because only black lives matter. Because, you know, when it comes down to it, I think that for many working class Americans, the goals and aims of black lives matter are really applicable to their lives as well. Let's yeah, let's take this opportunity to practice a little bit of empathy for the other side. So I'm going to just do a little thought experiment and I'm going to ask you to, so this is where I'm really violating that first, uh, that first principle I mentioned. I'm going to ask you to sit in the shoes of a majority person, uh, but okay. one who has hit some tough times. And I'm going to try and do this too, and I invite listeners to do this as well, especially if you're having a hard time understanding someone in the All Lives Matter movement. So imagine you're part of a white community in the Rust Belt, you know, Ohio or Michigan, and like 50% of the jobs in your town are gone because of manufacturing leaving. Poverty is rampant. Drug use is really rampant. And you start hearing about Black Lives Matter. And you see some clip of, you know, a black woman interrupting Bernie Sanders at a rally. And you think to yourself, this is nothing. You can't even imagine what they're talking about. It's nothing like your life. Uh, There might be some police brutality in your town, but it's toward whites. 
if, if there is any, because yeah. it's basically all whites that are living there. How difficult is it for you in that moment to empathize with the Black Lives Matter movement, especially if all you see is the most egregious headlines of the loudest and brashest of the protesters, right? You're yeah. not, you're not getting headlines of the calm sit-ins that doesn't make the nightly news, especially if you're watching Fox news, which likely right. you are in this scenario. As you hear that, Trisha, just like, does your heart break for that situation? Are you frustrated by it? Are you frustrated by misinformation of the media? Like what is your reaction to that? Yeah. I mean, I guess first I would say that, it is frustrating when people have a certain idea of what they think Black Lives Matter is um, that is based on, you know, a, a sensational headline or, you know, soundbite or, you know, something, you know, a quick shot from the news when, you know, that doesn't really represent the core of the movement. I think a lot of the difficulty, and this actually speaks a little bit to what I think is perhaps a weakness of the Black Lives Matter movement, is that there is really no official leader. There's no real official leadership. I mean, there are certainly people who have taken up the mantle and who organize more than others, but there's not like a person you can say, you know, this, this is the president of Black Lives Matter and this is, you know, the treasurer of Black Lives Matter and, you right. know, this person is the official spokesperson. So you're not get necessarily getting official commentary from the organization when you talk to somebody who says that they're part of Black Lives Matter. So it can be difficult to sort of suss out what is really truly part of the platform and what what is frankly just that particular chapter's belief and you know a chapter in Los Angeles could be different from a chapter in Dallas and and so on and so forth but certainly i would understand somebody feeling like that is not applicable to their lives and and in their sort of daily reality and I, I wouldn't blame someone for, for feeling that way if they look at it and think that it's just a matter of police brutality, for example. One thing that I would want, you know, someone to know who is who is seeing this is that the aims of Black Lives Matter don't just revolve around police brutality, don't just revolve around, you know, dealing with issues with police and incidents of force with police. There is a much broader platform that I think really is inclusive of the working class citizen, you know, someone who is feeling disenfranchised, somebody who is feeling that, you know, jobs and this society have left them behind. Yeah. It's one of those things, man, you know, every article I read about Trump's base or, whatever. It's like you are trying to find this balance between empathy, but not wanting to just pity people and look down on them. It's difficult. It's difficult to do. And I know I'm having a lot of trouble with it personally. Yeah. I, you know, you're right to, to give it a little bit of perspective. My sister-in-law is a physician and she did her her residency in Pennsylvania, and she was, you know, fairly close to the Ohio border, so sort of the Rust Belt area, and she spent several years there So in, in working in health, so she got a chance to see a broad swath of the community and, you know, certainly lived among it, and so I understand that feeling of, of sort of hopelessness and feeling that, you know, nobody really cares cares about what's going on in your society and you feel like, you know, there's so much that's going on in our community. I can't be bothered with something that I think is happening in a big city somewhere else. I have to be concerned with what's going on right here in my sort of everyday reality. So yeah, I, I really understand that and, you know, have heard from her, you know, the the difficulties that people have in, you know, in the communities there. But what I will say is that the feelings that people are feeling you know, for a lot of these these towns in the Rust Belt, that's really how people of color feel, regardless of where they live, whether they're in the Rust Belt or they're in New York City or Los Angeles or, you know, San Jose, San Francisco. And that's really why Black Lives Matter started. So I think that if people see, you know, Black Lives Matter protests and they say, you know, that's not for me, I don't understand it, and that's far from my everyday reality— 
I hope that people would actually understand that many of these same frustrations are what led to Black Lives Matter. So there is a lot more commonality than than one might actually think at first glance. One way to kind of paint it broadly would be to say, this system does not care about us and it has left us behind. It's not here to address our needs. And you could say that about both segments of society, right? That's that's exactly right. And, you know, if if one looked at the platform of Black Lives Matter, I mean, you really see the way it would impact all working class folks, not just specifically people of color or specifically black people. You know, part of part of Black Lives Matter, which people probably don't even know about, is that one of the things they call for as part of the platform is restructuring of tax codes at local, state and federal levels to ensure that the wealthiest Americans are paying their fair share of taxes because they understand that low-income people pay proportionally more in state and local taxes than the wealthy. So that is something that would help, you know, somebody who is a working class person to think, oh, well, you know, maybe my tax burden would be a little bit lower. Maybe it would put a little bit extra money in my pocket, you know, on a month-to-month basis so that I could afford to buy the things I need to buy for my family, to be able to live in, you know, a safe neighborhood, to be able to buy things for my children. You know, these are things that would affect everybody, wouldn't just affect people of color. So forgive my ignorance, but is there anything in the Black Lives Matter platform about uh, public school property tax funding? So part of the the argument of changing, and I'm not sure if there's anything specifically about property taxes per se, but part of the idea of reforming the tax code is that it is services to, you know, lower and working class neighborhoods that are getting cut. And those neighborhoods are what feel it most strongly. So, for example, when they're cutting services such as, you know, cutting the number of teachers that they have and cutting, you know, arts programs or music programs and things like that at schools. And let's say they do it for every school in the state because it's all part of the state's budget. Okay. Well, the working class and lower income communities are going to feel it much harder because those individuals don't have the disposable income to be able to give right back to the school to be able to fund those programs. Whereas, you know, in California or in other states where I've seen that they've had cuts, certain communities are able to put money back into the system directly to be able to fund it again. So they're not going to have their kids go without an arts program or a music program, even if the state cuts funding, whereas the lower lower income and working class communities have to suffer without it. Yeah, that's interesting. You don't see robust booster clubs for the arts in low income neighborhoods. You might see them in the nicer neighborhoods. Right. And that's so that's not what I was thinking about. What I was thinking about was and I don't know if this is true in every state, but I know it's true mm-hmm. in Washington and California. Whenever you hear someone talking about buying a home and they say, and the schools are great, one of the things they mean by that is the neighborhoods that have good schools, the values of the homes go up because people want good schools. But most public schools are funded by property taxes in the immediate area around them. So mm-hmm. I experience this in my own life. My wife and I own a home in a neighborhood that has good schools. It is in North Seattle. Before the 50s, black families were not even allowed to own land in North Seattle. It's a dark chapter of Seattle's history. But Mm -hmm. anyway, the point is, it's a self-perpetuating system. We buy a home in a neighborhood with good schools. The schools stay good. The people who can afford to move there, move there. They raise the prices of the homes. As the prices of the homes raise, the property taxes go up, and more property taxes go to the local schools. It's a cycle of perpetuating inequality, actually, between school districts. And so that is something that people don't think about. But that is actually not anything that I have done to pull myself up by my bootstraps, right? Right. I was in a position to purchase this home. And in our case, we moved north of the city where homes were cheaper, but still nice. Mm -hmm. And all, all it took for me was to be able to get into that house. Now that I'm into that house, I'm not doing anything to reap the benefits. My children aren't doing anything to reap the benefits of these better schools. And had I been forced to move to a poorer neighborhood because of my means initially, then I would be reaping those negative benefits for years and years to come. 
This is the mm-hmm. thing that I think sometimes gets lost for people is that the American tale, not the film, mm-hmm. but the, <laughs> the American story, uh, not talking about Fievel, but the American story mm-hmm. is, is bootstrap pulling. I mean, it's, I, I work hard and in America, if I work hard, there is the opportunity to succeed. That is really the foundational kind of either a story or a myth, depending on what you want to call it, that our country is founded upon. But that's not true in a lot of these things we're talking mm-hmm. about. Schools, uh, the incarceration rates, the sentence lengths, the chances of getting a callback for a job, depending on the color of your skin, being stopped and frisk for no discernible reason. All of these things actually are legitimate pieces of data that work against that story. That's right. And, you know, I, I think that it also goes, it, it touches a little bit upon, you know, quite honestly, race discussions and discussions with, you know, white people and people of color about race. Um, it's it was interesting that you mentioned the idea of, you know, individualism and, and, and meritocracy of this country, um, because all these things sort of tie together. But yes, I mean, that's exactly right. Uh, you know, being, being fortunate enough to purchase in an area that, that has not that far in the past history of excluding people of color, you know, it does, it does work to people's benefit. And I'm glad that you said that because when people have these discussions and, you know, for you as a white male to be able to say that, because when people have these discussions and if I, as a person of color, point that out, I think it makes people feel a little defensive about their story. And it's not said in a way that's meant to blame any individual. You know, I'm certainly not blaming you for having, you know, a nice home or having it in a neighborhood where you're able to take advantage of of good public school education for your kids or anything like that. But I think people feel a little bit attacked if a person of color brings that up. So I think it's good when, you know, someone who is part of the majority group, specifically a white male, um, can acknowledge that privilege because I think that it helps people understand that, you know, they're not being picked on for it, but it just is a reality based on our country's history. Well, I think that it might just help that I have a a robust ego. So there's a negative (laughs) side to that. Uh, Don't don't praise me too much. Okay, Trisha, if you're okay with it, I'd like to ask you to share an experience or a few experiences that you have had personally yourself with racism in your life. Okay. Well, I guess I will start out with something that will probably sound like a humble brag, but, um, you know, growing up, I was always told by my, by my mom, of course, that I was very smart. And that I would, you know, definitely be successful and I could do anything that I wanted to do. And she definitely pushed me in school to be able to, you know, take more advanced classes and things like that. Now, I also had the misfortune of moving a lot growing up. So during my K through 12 years, I went to 13 different schools. So there was a lot of bouncing around and you know every time you move schools you have to be able to be slotted into different classes things like that so without fail when I would move as I got older I would be in some ways held back and not permitted to join you know an honors class or something like that now regardless of my sparkling transcripts regardless of my great behavior and everything else you know everything that one would want for somebody to have to be in an honors class, I would be consistently held out for at least one semester until I had to prove myself all over again. And then they would let me go. And I was fortunate to have a mom who really pushed and really, you know, prodded the schools to make this happen for me. Because if I didn't have that kind of parent, you know, I could have just ended up you know, in regular classes, which is fine, but it wouldn't have pushed me to the level that I needed. So this is something that happened throughout my educational time. When I, and this is just speaking in terms of education, there's also the other sort of social issues, you know, going into a store, having someone follow me around to make sure I didn't take anything. That's happened a countless number of times. I can't even begin to tell 
you, the number of times that it's happened because it's happened so often and happened, I remember at least as soon as, you know, seventh and eighth grade. So, you know, what's up, 13 and 14 years old. As I got older, I found that the ways that people expressed, you know, at least racist behavior, it wasn't as much, um, you know, people using the N-word or people doing anything sort of outright. It was, I don't know, I guess more more insidious than that. So by way of example, when I started at Harvard Law School, I was still, you know, still meeting people. You're put into sections, which is just groups of 80 there, 80 law students. You take pretty much all of your classes with them your first year. And these become, you know, what end up being your closest friends because you're in the trenches in one L year together, which is like, I guess, academic boot camp. It's basically like Harry Potter. So you're Gryffindor. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I was, I was, I was sorted into Gryffindor section two. And you look over at the Slytherins and you're like, those are the racists. You already know it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. The the other people, they're already, they're very much othered. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Uh, But you know, you're like, Oh, we're we're the best. Yeah. (laughs) We mean, you know, we're the best. We're, you know, we're going to be the closest. I mean, these are end up being your friends. And there was a guy that I met in the beginning and I won't share his name just in case, but I met him in the first week or so that we were in classes together and he started to find out where people went to undergrad. Oh, you went to Harvard. Okay. Oh, you went to Princeton. Okay, great. Oh, you went to UCLA. Hmm. Okay. You know, and so right away I was kind of like, okay, well that's interesting. And his whole persona and, and belief system was such that he really was evaluating whether he thought someone was smart or not based on, you know, a initial like two minute conversation, whether, you know, what the person looked like, where he heard they went to undergrad. And he really based whether or not he wanted to be friendly with a person, speak to the person or, you know, have a study group with the person on, on that sort of snap judgment. And, and not to single him out at all, because there were also other people at school who were like that. But that was that really took me aback because that was, you know, my first week, my first week of law school. And I, I was sort of of the perspective of, you know, we're all here for a reason. I don't think that there's a ton of like not smart people that go to Harvard Law School. So I'm operating under the base assumption that everybody here is smart. But, you know, maybe <laughs> maybe I was a naive one. And I do have to say it did warm my heart a little bit when I knew that I finished my first semester with better grades. Um, oh, come on, did. come on. Don't indulge <laughs> the darkness. Because, you know, I can't help it, but it, it wasn't because I, I wanted bad things for him, but I hoped that he would learn a lesson in that moment that whatever judgments he had about people and those sort of like quick snap judgments, that that's not all what they're cracked up to be and you should really take some time to get to know people instead of generalizing based on whatever his criteria were so or whatever his criteria was so yeah that was that's really why i i really hoped he learned a lesson for it i hope he is gone with him but well and that's that's interesting because you can take the logical structure of of his approach there and you can apply Mm -hmm. it to things like callbacks for jobs or stop and frisk or whatever. And what we're trying to say is, uh, and I'm trying to say this as well, is like, if you want to believe the American dream, which again, I just, I just mean that talent will find opportunity that if you Mm -hmm. can summarize it, there has to be a level ish playing field for that to be the case. Otherwise you, you just can't affirm it. You can't affirm that statement. And so right. for that guy, to, for that guy, it's, it's, it's a cheap shot maybe because it's just so obvious that like if you made it to Harvard Law, <laughs> probably you don't need any more of a meritocracy than that. Like that's right. pretty much that should be good enough, right? And, yes. And so if even someone there can have that problem, then, you know, whatever. People have their quirks and they have their deficiencies of character. But extrapolating that out to just the American system as a whole if a kid who went to UCLA, which is a good school, but if you had gone to Fresno state or whatever, mm-hmm. y- and if you make it into Harvard law, that is the whole point of the American dream. 
that you could get there from a cheap small town state school. That's like what the whole Mm -hmm. thing is based on. And so if a black man who got pulled over was found weed on him, went to jail for 30 days, if that guy can't go and get a good job or start a good business or whatever, then what the hell are Mm -hmm. we talking about with this American dream? Like literally, what are we talking Mm -hmm. about? Yeah. It's, uh, you know, I think that we like to, we like to believe in the American dream because it's something that makes us feel more, more proud of our successes and enables us to, I don't know, I just, just feel like, you know, anything that happens to us is 100% because we did it. It's the individual. We don't have to acknowledge that there's a greater system at play um, for, for anything, really. And so that also goes with, you know, not to like beat this drum, but <laughs> people's belief about race, too. If they think that it's all about individual, then they don't have to believe that there's a greater system that really works to disadvantage certain groups of people. Yeah. So I think you were going to tell another story. So let's hear yeah. that. Yeah. So after I graduated from law school, I went to work at a big firm and, you know, I was I was working really hard, but I felt like I had trouble getting much traction in terms of getting consistent workflow and the quality of the assignments that I was getting. And I spoke to a mid-level associate who I worked with often who had given me work and we worked well together. And she expressed a little bit of wonderment that I wasn't getting good quality assignments and um, why others who she felt did work of lesser quality than I, why they continued to get um, great assignments. And my own sort of internal belief that this was born out of race-based differences between myself and another junior associate were borne out by a study that I read subsequently. This group called NextGen's did a study on implicit bias within the legal profession. So they had a team with, you know, was comprised of partners from different law firms, create a research memo from a hypothetical third year associate at a law firm. And then when it was done, they deliberately inserted 22 errors into the memo. Then they took this finished memo and they distributed it to 60 partners from 22 different law firms who agreed to participate in what they thought was a writing analysis study. And nice. so the cover email asked the partners to edit the, the memo for factual, technical, and substantive errors, and then rate the memo from one to five, one being extremely poor, five being extremely well-written. For the 60 partners who were evaluating, half of them got a cover email that said that the writer was African-American. For the other half, it indicated that the writer was white. And then both writers were named the same name. They're both called Thomas Meyer. Both indicated that Thomas went to NYU Law School, which is a really good law school. And so, you know, they tried to control for any naming, anything else. It was just the, dif- the, the difference was race. The only difference was race. the race of the only writer. difference. Exactly. They, people, other writers got the same memo. So although the memo was identical in every respect other than the race, the partners who were given the African-American Thomas's memo found more errors and provided a lower overall evaluation of the memo. So out of a five, his average score was a 3.2, whereas the Thomas who was white got an average of 4.1. Wow. And, you know, the evaluators also were weren't asked to edit or comment about formatting of the memo, but nearly all, 29 out of 30, sought formatting changes from the African-American Thomas, only 11 from the the white Thomas. Man. And so even when people are giving, you know, giving work that <laughs> you, you think is, you know, sort of generally average for for that person's stature, for their year level, something like that, the black associates work is looked at more stringently. And when it's looked at like that and they see these errors, it's kind of like, well, I'm not going to give anything to this person again. They make too many mistakes instead of thinking, Hey, this person really needs to be trained. And it's a negative, it has a negative effect on someone's career. And so I will say that that, that was my experience working at a firm. And I knew that I didn't want to stay at a firm forever, but that certainly 
encouraged me to want to look elsewhere because there is something about feeling as if people are not invested in you as a person and invested in your development, but instead are going to pick at things that aren't necessarily needed. And it it has a way of making people feel defeated in the workplace. And so there's a reason why, and this is probably plays a lot into it, why big law firms have problems retaining, you know, black associates and other people of color in the firms. And it's because people don't like to feel like they're being beaten down and being looked over and being picked at more than anyone else. And hey, look, you know, clients pay a lot of money at these big firms. And so their work needs to be perfect. And I get that. But if you're given something where the error level is the same, there has to be a reason why there's far less attrition by white associates than there is by people of color in law firms. Wow. So Trisha, before we go here, one thing we try to do on this podcast is have our guests critique their own side to show that they are Mm -hmm. not just drinking the Kool-Aid. This is a weirder topic to do that on for the reasons that I gave at the very beginning. But if you are willing to, could you name something for us in the Black Lives Matter movement that you think is either wrong or just bad policy or bad form of any kind? Yeah. I think for me, the most problematic part of the Black Lives Matter platform is the the call for reparations. You know, I understand in theory why why they would ask for reparations for past and also for continuing harms um, against against black people in the United States. Unfortunately, I just don't think that that is a realistic goal. If it didn't happen at the end of the Civil War, if it didn't happen, you know, at the end of the Civil Rights Movement in the 1960s, I just don't see it happening now. I mean, I think that while operations would have been a good idea, it's not going to happen. It really, I think, actually frustrates people you know, who are in the majority position, so white, white people, when they see a call for reparations. I think that that sort of pushes some people away because it's it's an unrealistic goal. We know our country is, you know, in, in deep debt. We know that there are plenty of, of social programs and other things that we would love to have, you know, infrastructure programs paying for roads and paying for bridges and, you know, things like that. So people aren't going to get money. I think that the other parts of the platform, sure, you know, about reforming communities, things like that, but reparations aren't going to happen. And I think that including that pushes away people who could potentially be allies, um, as I think that everybody really is interested in a lot of the other parts of the platform on a general level, because it really is about reforming and improving our communities. Yeah. I mean, I will admit that as someone who is fundamentally sympathetic to the Black Lives Matter movement, when that platform was put up online, which by the way, is not like universally binding, right? Right. Um, But some group put that up and I saw reparations and I was like, oh, I, I just didn't have a good feeling about that. Personally, I felt like most of the people that I might be having an argument with would see that and be like conversations over. Yeah. Which, you yeah, know, I, I would, agree with that. would be a violent sort of uh, conversationally violent response, but I just, you know, fact of the matter, that was just my reaction to it was like, Oh, like kind of, uh Oh. And so it's interesting <laughs> to hear you say that something similar. Yeah. I, I just, I really just don't agree with it. And I, I, I would prefer instead, you know, in my opinion, I think that black lives matter should take a more, forward-facing approach, a more proactive approach. I think that reparations is sort of a a backwards-facing, reactive approach. These things have already happened, and so I don't think that there's any way that we can change it, you know, stopping it from now forward and improving what we do from now forward, I think is a much more important step than, than dwelling on things that happened in the past. Now, I say that recognizing fully, you know, we had the discussion about, you know, North Seattle and, you know, but people people being able to build wealth through real estate and how certain groups were excluded and things like that. And I fully understand how wrongs of the past can continue and impact, you know, generational wealth and and what people have now. I just don't think there's a good way of going about fixing it by trying to account for that monetarily. So it's more of a policy opinion on yours than an ethical opinion. I mean, it's kind of both because, 
in terms of the ethics of it, are we going to now start going in and sussing out, okay, who has been in the United States for, you know, X number of generations? Does it change? Do you get more money if you can trace your family tree back to slavery? Or if your family's only been here for two generations, do you get lesser? If you're, a you know, if you're the first generation of your family born into the U.S., do you get anything? I, it's too, it's too messy. And, yeah, I mean, from a policy perspective, from a practical perspective, yeah, for, for those reasons, I just I just don't think it's a good idea. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, Tricia, thank you so much. You have been wonderful. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us before we go? You know, I, I just hope that for anybody who's listening who is maybe more resistant to having conversations about, about race with family and friends, I, I just hope that people would speak out about it more. Uh, for people who are hesitant because they're not sure, they haven't read as much, maybe they only sort of know what they've seen, you know, in the news or something like that. And, you know, they don't know who to ask. I really would encourage those people to ask someone who they look to as being more knowledgeable on the subject or really look into it themselves. The improvements that that I at least would hope to see in our country won't happen if it's just me as a person of color trying to work towards them. I really do feel like, you know, all Americans need to be sort of brothers and sisters in arms in terms of affecting these these social and, you know, economic and et cetera changes that we want to see. So, I, you know, I'm hopeful that people will reach out, whether they agree or not. Frankly, you know, I think some great conversations can be had, too, even when people don't agree. Um, and, I, you know, I just I would just would hope that that our conversation today would inspire people to do that. Well, and on that note, we're going to have some articles in the show notes on the website. So if you want to read some of the studies that Trisha was referencing, they will be up there and you can have the actual data yourself. Trisha, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you guys, as always, for listening. You can find me on Twitter, D-A-N-C-O-K-E. You can join the Depolarize podcast Facebook discussion group. And next week, or rather Thursday morning, if I'm not mistaken, the next episode coming up will be with a third-party libertarian to discuss if there's a third option. Thank you guys so much. See you then.